Welcome to Radio Rehab. I'm your host, Dana Keys. This week, my guest is TJ Woodward. TJ is a coach, a counselor, a recovery specialist, an inspirational speaker, and a best-selling author. I mean, is that enough or what? Let's join the conversation so you can see for yourself just how cool this guy is. So proud to have him on the show. Welcome to Radio Rehab. Here's your host, Dana Keys. Today, I have a special guest, T.J. Woodward, in studio. I know it's okay to say T.J.'s last name because we're going to be talking about a book he wrote later on in the week. So, welcome to Radio Rehab, T.J. Thank you, Dana. I am delighted to be here. I am really looking forward to our conversation wherever it might take us. Me too. This is going to be fascinating. So, first, tell me a little bit. Well, tell me about your story. Well, once upon a time, mm-hmm. actually, I do want to go back to a really, really early in life because I remember being a very, very happy child. As a matter of fact, my mom will often say I was one of the happiest babies, one of the happiest toddlers that she had ever met. And I actually remember being really filled with joy and really present and in awe of the world. I also remember that experience closing down or shutting off or my I remember separating from that joy. And one one experience in particular when I was 7 years old, I remember being at my dining room table and literally felt like a wall was being built around my heart. Like there was a physical sensation of closing down and I think at that moment I made some really big decisions about myself. There's something wrong with me. The world is not safe. And that was such a profound moment for me because I walked around that way from age seven until 13 when I found some relief. And I'm right. guessing you know what relief I oh, found absolutely. at 13. Yeah. Well, well, let me ask first. So you actually have a conscious memory of being seven years old and the change from happy and you know happy, joyous and free. As, as you are as a little kid to, to not like that anymore like you just re- you remember the moment I remember the moment it's kind of crazy because most people will say yeah I can um, imagine when I felt happier or imagine a time that I right. was more connected with myself but I actually remember exactly what was happening it was my mom my two sisters were at the dining room table and I remember a physical sensation of closing down. And my mind, you know, I don't know what a seven-year-old mind says, but I do remember thinking that it didn't feel safe. And I remember just closing down, and it was almost like my shoulders were dropping and a wall was built around my heart. Obviously, looking back, I can see that that was a strategy for survival. But at the time, it felt uh, really painful and really dark. And I walked around that way for a long time. Oh, God, I, I totally relate to that. And I remember like at that. But see, I don't have a conscious memory of the exact moment that it happened. But I do remember a difference in me, you know, during certain ages. And I remember once I got to that part where it was like where I went dark, I'd yeah. like to say. Uh, I remember that's when I start, I learned to become a sleepaholic. Like my family would laugh. Like I'd go back to the South to visit my grandmother, you know, and at first they would be like, well, she's on California time, you know, but then it's like, okay, she's been here three weeks and she's still getting up at, you know, noon or sometimes two. Yeah, it's amazing, right? The strategies that we develop yeah. for survival. Right. Sleep. You know, I, I mean, I work with a lot of people that talk about an early practice being closing themselves in their room, closing the door, their alone time, their fantasy life. And for me, I'm not sure exactly what my my 
coping mechanisms, as we call them. I call them brilliant strategies. Mm -hmm. But my brilliant strategy really was just to shut down. So I really, really went inside and I really became invisible. I was kind of the invisible child at that point from that point until, you know, my teenage years. Right. And what happened? So when you were 13, what was your first substance? What was the first thing that worked for you? Weed. Weed? Yeah. Weed. Someone handed it to me and I smoked it and I thought, wow. I feel like, now, now this wasn't a conscious thought. I right. wasn't like, oh, I feel like I'm out of the backyard again watching a butterfly. But it was like I felt relief from all of those tapes I had in my mind, um, the belief I had about myself, the fear of the world, all of that just dissipated. And I felt, you know, like I could take a deep breath again. And we hear this a lot, mm-hmm. of course. I just felt like I was reconnected with myself. Now, obviously, it didn't keep working that way, or you and I wouldn't be sitting here talking exactly. about this. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's just, it's always so interesting to me how each of us has a different substance, you know what I mean? Or a different thing that does that. It's like, you know, I heard people say, like, and then the minute I did, you know, for example, they smoked weed, it worked for them. And like, I just remember my specific one where, um, like, cause weed, I, I remember the first, I smoked weed when I was 13 too. And I'd like, I didn't have any kind of like a pleasurable reaction to it. Uh, but it was weird cause I was looking at the other kids and I'm like, maybe I just don't like drugs. Well, I just hadn't tried the right one yet. You well, know? there you go. Yeah. I mean, obviously mine evolved into other ones right. that I found that worked even better. Yeah. Yeah. But that was the first. So how long, so, so when you're 13, you, you were smoking weed, smoking like, weed, drinking, mm-hmm. Um, really at that point, as we know, it was fun. I felt relief. Mm-hmm. I felt more connected with myself. I felt more present with the world. Right. And obviously it didn't keep working that way. I ended up getting sober. Um, I kind of ironically 54 days before my 21st birthday, but the last year of my using was really dark. I, f- I discovered ecstasy, which uh-huh. by the way, was my magic moment. Oh, where, like now okay. I really found it. And of course, if I loved it the first time. I wanted to do more and more and more. And it was never as amazing as the first time I did it. But I spent a whole year on a really um, pretty dark, low-level search for connection, for love, um, thinking that I was going to find that through another person or using more and more ecstasy. And it just finally I reached a point where I felt so dead on the inside that it was time for me to shift. Yeah. And I mean, I remember ecstasy being kind of... uh a catalyst to relationships. Like I totally remember, you know, XCC wasn't my like drug of choice, but it was definitely a phase I went through. And I remember being like, wait, what if I was at, you know, cause back in LA and you know, the nineties, it was all about after hours and, and raves and all the, like the, you know, secret parties often like out in San Bernardino that went on until, you know, like 10 o'clock in the morning, at which point you went somewhere else and kept it going. Um, and it was just like this fake reality, you know what I mean? And I remember at one point going, "What well, I like these people if I weren't on acid and ecstasy right now, you know what I mean? Like, I, I know I, because I'm not a touchy-feely person, especially not back then. I had like a little bit of trauma happen in my childhood, so I'm not like real... You know, I, I'm not like a touchy patty person. And on that, it was just comfortable to touch your friends, just yeah. to hold hands, to play with somebody's hair. Um, or my, I used to wear Angora sweaters because I would get back rubs because, you know, they're so soft. Everybody's tripping. And like, yeah, you can touch it. Go ahead, touch it. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, free back rubs. <laughs> but yeah, and it was like, it wasn't, in, I think in, when I was a teenager, when I was young, it wasn't until like I stopped using. Or no, it was the end of it. And it's so funny because at the end of it, I was blaming. I was like, they're making the drugs wrong. Like these are cut with something. It's like, it's so 
crazy to me how long it took me to go, oh my God, come on. You know what I mean? It's so like, I just feel like my disease had such a, like a chokehold on me that it took me so long to, you know, until I was in my thirties to get yeah, sober and, finally. You know, when, when I hear you talking, I'm thinking about like, I didn't know any other options. I felt dead on the inside toward the end of my using. And of course, like you said, I just wanted to use more something different, or maybe it's a different group of people, mm-hmm. or maybe a different nightclub or whatever it was, there was this outer search, I felt like I had my umbilical cord in my hand, and I was just trying to plug it into someone or something to get fed. Right. And I love that you spoke to the um, trauma and that it was really helping you with the trauma because I think back to my childhood and I look back to age seven and what was really happening, uh-huh. right, that created that shutdown. And, and there are multiple layers to what was happening. Um, part of what was happening is what my in my family, what people were saying, what people were doing, and the energy I was feeling were three totally different things. Uh, my dad and his side of the family, there's a, a hypersexuality on his side of the family, a lot of sexual abuse. Oh, and yeah. I was around that, and I remember that just being a big part of feeling unsafe in the world. I that's I have the same exact thing for my childhood, and that's another reason, like when I was talking about like not being very huggy and touchy. And even now, I can't sleep um, like on my back, just with my arms at my side, unless I am in a hotel room or a locked room where it's, and it's not that I'm ever surrounded by anyone I don't trust anymore. Um, you know, my cats might jump on me, but it's like, I, I just, I'm so like just protective of my chest area, you know, which is strange because that's where my heart is. And that's, but I'm just very like closed off still you know and but that happened when i was that age because of that because of people freely touching me when i didn't want to be touched and you know um hypersexual jokes which are even to this day like disgusting like you don't make a sex joke to me is just so offensive like a sexual joke like saying something sexual to somebody that you don't know you know what i mean like it's so weird especially if we were surrounded with not only the joke, but that was taken much further, right? And there's a violation of, yeah. like, this is me. And especially as a little child, right? If we come into this world really open, which, you know, you look at a really small child, a pre-programmed human, and they're really wide open, yeah. right? Because they don't have anything that they need to defend against yet. And unfortunately, you know, we come into this world and we are taught all sorts of things that are counter to the truth. I love one of my favorite things to talk about is um, Don Miguel Ruiz in his book, The Four Agreements. He uses the term the domestication of the human. And I love that because when we break a, when we, um, you know, when we domesticate a horse, we call it breaking them or breaking their spirit. I know. I hate that. I hate hearing that. I know. And I mean, it's so sad, especially for the, like, for the animals. But yeah, I mean, just the thought of, of breaking someone's spirit is just it's so sad and it, it's abusive yeah. i mean i it, it happens even in, with adults and adult relationships like you know um i know people talk about a lot about like gaslighting nowadays but it's like i know it happens a lot in adult relationships where it's like there's a lot of breaking of someone's spirit and it's like but yeah when we're kids it's just you have nowhere to turn and you don't have like the vocabulary to say oh this is happening which is interesting because so my mom put me and my parents actually because they were very you know open-minded I guess is the right word and they started putting me in therapy at a very young age Mm. but because my addiction was so strong what I did was I used all these words against them 
and against myself, really. It's like I learned all this psychobabble, you know, so it was like, oh, I have abandonment issues, therefore I don't have to participate in life. That's what it boiled down to. Like, that's not exactly what, but that's pretty much what I said. Or it's like, oh, I have these issues and they happen, you know, pre-verbal, so um, I get to do drugs, (laughs) you know? And they put me on a Fexer for depression when I was like, I'm going to say 16 or 17, and it didn't work, of course, you know, and that specific medication really just didn't work well with me. It was terrible. But when I did heroin for the first time, I remember going, that is what Mm. psych meds are supposed to do. Like, here's the missing thing, you know, and it's like, I I basically had said said to like therapists, like, when you find, you know, find me one that does that. (laughs) <laughs> They're like, there, that doesn't exist. I was like, well, then I'm not getting clean, you know. <laughs> and like, until that just made me more miserable than anything else in the world. Right, but, right. but yeah, it's like uh, that's what I tell people. I, you know, like addiction. Mo, from when most of us start using, it's not because we're partying. It's because we're self medicating. Absolutely, and and you know, I have come to recognize that trauma and shame and disconnection are really the three things that are at the root of most people's addiction. Mm. Certainly true for me, right? And it wasn't like at 13 I was walking around saying, I feel so disconnected from my truth. Right, I right. I have so much unresolved trauma, and I have these inner, this inner dialogue that's telling me I'm broken, and I really need relief. It was more like someone handed me the substance, I used it, I felt relief from all of that. It was like I was carrying that for all those years that age 7 to 13 was so dark because I didn't have any solution and I was you know it's it's usually fight flight or freeze and for me it was freeze I just felt me too frozen. I'm a freezer too yeah I like we I recently got some some very sad news and my friend who told me she because she's known me since you know high school wasn't even looking at me and was on the phone and couldn't see me and, and she immediately like 10 seconds after she told me went breathe breathe and I'm like Cause she knows me. Like that's right. what I'll do. I'm like, <gasps> I just stop. I freeze and I stop breathing. And it's it's funny because I absolutely despise yoga. It's just I can't. It, it I can't. It just bores me. I can't deal with it. But people, I mean, I all meet strangers and they're like, you should do yoga. I'm like, mm-hmm. I know. I don't breathe. I get it. <laughs> well, it's interesting because when we're really young, we don't have the the tools. And you spoke to that so perfectly. You know, my seven-year-old self didn't have the ability cognitively to say, maybe dad uh, has some deep issues that he hasn't resolved. Maybe he and his brothers are practicing their sex addiction. Maybe mom is suffering from depression, and that's why she rages sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. I took it on as there was something wrong with me. Of course. And I didn't have the cognitive ability to understand what to do with it, so I froze. So that's my natural response. And even today, when something comes up, I notice the freeze response happens. And then recovery has allowed me to recognize what's happening because the key to it for me is it doesn't get fixed mentally only, right? Mm -hmm. I can say, okay, here I am an adult now and this traumatic experience isn't still happening to me, but it happens unconsciously, right? There's Right. It's a body reaction that you can't do anything about. Yeah. Like intellectually, you know, it's like, okay, that person who did that to me in my family is dead, has been dead for a long time. They cannot do anything to me anymore. But yeah, it's a body reaction like that you can't do anything about, you know? Well, Well, I mean, not that you can't do anything about, but it's like, you can't, you can't just stop it from happening. Like it's, you know, 
Right, we can't think our way out of it. Yes, yeah, there, that's yeah. yes. And so, <laughs> and and so, for me, my deeper work has been going back to that little boy and reintegrating and allowing him to feel what he didn't feel before, and that's become kind of the basis for my own recovery, and certainly for the work that I do now in the whole recovery movement. It's really helping people get back and recognizing that the traumatic event had this profound effect on them, and we're not going to fix it you know, fix it. I'm using air quotes. Mm -hmm. Our listeners can't see it. And I do that all the time. (laughs) Um, Because it's not a it's not just a mental issue. It's really, as you said, trapped in the body. Mm. It gets trapped in the body. It gets reactivated in the body. So we really need to go back in and heal all of that. So I really want us to shift the conversation, you know, a broad conversation from addiction treatment to addiction healing. Yeah, We might save that for another episode. But, yes, definitely. We will yeah. save that for another episode. <laughs> uh, just, But just to uh, touch back on this uh, really quick, you, you, said, you said you got clean before you turned 21. So you've been working on yourself for a long time. A little over 33 years sober. So, yeah, because yeah. I, I just want to say, because I'm listening to you talk, and I'm like, I wish I was just, I, why I feel like I have a wet brain. <laughs> so eloquent. <laughs> but it's like, so, yeah, I just want to say to the listeners, like, it hap- it comes with time. You know, like, my first 18 months, it was hard for me to even put a sentence together. Absolutely. I mean, even though I talk for a living, I was talking out my, out my neck, basically. You know, it's like, so, yeah, like, this is, you are an example of what happens when you stay clean and work on yourself. Absolutely. Without, without taking breaks from doing that or taking a like vacation and relapsing like I've done (laughs) but so so you've been so you've been clean for 33 years 33 years oh my god yeah, I'm, that's what I'm saying. That's so awesome. I, mean, I remember when I first got sober, I met a woman named Mary Helen Brownell who really changed my life. And she was 19 years sober. And it just was mind-blowing. Or my friend Judy that I'm still connected with on Facebook, she was 10 years sober and 30. Or maybe she was 27. She oh got my sober God. really young. Right. And I was like, 10 years? That's crazy. And now it's like, oh, Wow. It's it's amazing to me. And I mean, I guess, you know, the, the key is, as they say, don't drink and use and don't die. And that, I know that's the only I know. I just I just celebrated four years and there's a woman up there uh, who's got, I believe, 39 or 40. But I'm always like, how did you like, how do you do it? She goes, well, I don't drink and I don't die. Like the, all the old timers say the same thing. And that's I mean, that's a great. That's true. It's true. But it's funny, like, and we're going to get into this in tomorrow's episode, is you cannot drink and not die, and you can live a clean and sober life, and you can be uh, miserable. <laughs> you can be absolutely miserable, and to the point where people look at you and go, why Why just drink? You know? I mean, God, you're so unhappy. Yeah. And in our next episode... Uh, You and I are going to discuss a way around that. We're going to talk about conscious recovery. Awesome. I look forward to that. I'd like to thank TJ Woodward for being a guest on Radio Rehab today. It's been an awesome show. Now that we've gotten to know him, stay tuned for tomorrow's episode where we get to know conscious recovery as he explains it to us. I'd also like to thank you. Hello for listening. Thank you so much. You're awesome. You want to call us? It's 415-496-9511. Even when we're not in studio, you can email radiorehab at gotoproductions.com. That's G-O-T-O productions.com. And on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, it's at Radio Rehab Dana. Thanks again for listening and keep coming back.